All right, guys, I'm really glad you all could be here with us today for service. And I want to thank Pastor Dane and Pastor Joe just for this opportunity to be here to preach in front of you all and bring you all God's word. So like we read on the screen, we're in the book of John. <clears throat> now, a little bit of background on the book so you have a little, just more knowledge about it. The book was likely written around 85 AD, which is before the writing of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then Revelation. Now, the location was likely Ephesus according to the tradition of where the other books were written. You know, interestingly enough, the authorship of John has been disputed. And you'd think, you know, a book that's named the Gospel of John would not be disputed because it's John. But there's been some issues with that, people saying it's not him, it's somebody else. But there's three reasons we really know why it would be John. This is John the disciple, John son of Zebedee, John the beloved disciple. The first reason is it's the disciple that Jesus loved. So you think of that. It's someone who had a prominent role in the life of Jesus, the life of his ministry. And John was one of, those, one of those men in his inner circle. There's also a great knowledge of Palestinian geography as well as Jewish customs displayed through the book. And great attention given to numbers such as the feeding of the 5,000, how many were there, as well as the names of places or people that were involved in these events, which indicates likely the author was an eyewitness to these different events. Now also what's cool about John, the Gospel of John, is its uniqueness. You know, we tend to think that all the Gospels, all four of them, are the same. You know, they all do depict the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But John has some uniqueness to it that the others don't. So, for example, John draws upon different events that are not seen in the other, four, in the other three books. First one being the restoration of Peter, where Peter denies Jesus three times. And then when he is resurrected, he talks to Peter and he brings him back up. He restores his faith. Second being, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes dialogue between Jesus and his disciples, as well as a lot of private teachings on the Spirit. And lastly, what's really cool is there's five miracles that are seen in the Gospel of John that are not in the other books. The two that are not part of this, you see the walking in water and the feeding of the 5,000 are seen in the other books. But turning the water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing at the pool of Bethesda, the healing of the man born blind, as we see in this book, and then also the raising of Lazarus when he's dead. And so, going into the actual chapter, in order to really understand chapter 10 of John, you have to look back at chapter 9, kind of get a little recap of what happened to understand the events fully. So in chapter 9, Jesus is, he heals the man who was born blind. He was born blind from birth. And so he heals him on the Sabbath, and if you all know the Jewish tradition, Jewish rule, you cannot do work on the Sabbath. That's the rule. And so the Pharisees hear of him healing this man. They're really upset about it. And they say, he's a lawbreaker, you know, and therefore he's not from God. He couldn't have done this. So then kicking the man out, they excommunicate him, which is to kick out from the local synagogue. And he goes and talks to Jesus about this. And Jesus confronts the Pharisees and then rebukes them for it, which puts us into chapter 10. And so going into verse 14 from there, it says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And so looking at the first part of this, the I am statement, this is one of seven I am statements given throughout the Gospel of John. You know, we typically think of I am as just a normal way to start a sentence. But in this case, it's something specific to this book. So the statements, there are seven statements. So it's I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd in chapter, in verse 14. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, I am the vine. 
You have the seven statements that are unique to John. And it's really cool that it starts out that way. It's one of these statements. And so the next part you look at is the good shepherd. You start wondering, why did Jesus say shepherd? Why was the, what was the choice for that word? And it really goes back to context. And so remember, he's addressing the Jews in this chapter, as well as in chapter 9. And the idea of a shepherd was something that was very, very familiar to these people. A shepherd had a very important role in Israeli society at the time. And so the role of a shepherd in Israel was to watch, protect, and guide the sheep. And so the Pharisees, being the religious leaders, they were failing at this job. They were not caring for the sheep. They were not watching over the sheep. And so this is depicted very well in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 2 through 4, and it reads, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, and the lost you have not sought. With force and harshness you have ruled them. So you see, they're, they're, they were not doing their job. They were taking advantage of their position as religious leaders and just doing whatever they wanted to, basically. And so Jesus is saying that he is the good shepherd, and he's coming back to take his flock from the religious leaders, the Pharisees. This is also depicted, this is a common theme in the Old Testament. And this is centuries before the coming of the Messiah, who would fulfill these prophecies. So in Ezekiel 34 again, but verse 23, God said, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. And now David is reference to the line that Messiah would come from, the Davidic line. And he says, I will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Same idea is seen by the prophet Micah. And Micah says, the Messiah would arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of God, the Lord his God. That's Micah chapter 5, verse 4. So again, Jesus is saying he is the good shepherd, as it's depicted in the Old Testament, but it's comparing himself to the Pharisees that he's coming back to be the good shepherd, not the shepherds like the Pharisees. And so the next part of verse 14 is, I know my own, and my own know me. And again, like the I am statement, we think of it surface level as, you know, it's, a, it's normal. It's Jesus that knows his followers, and they know him. But the question really then arises, you know, what does it truly mean to know Jesus? So what does it mean? You know, is it to know about him, knowing things that he did in his life, knowing facts about him, you know? Is it asking him into your heart? They're saying the sinner's prayer when you're six years old at the Bible camp. And for me, growing up, that was really the impression I had of what it meant to know Jesus. It was, you know, say this little confession of faith, and you get baptized. You do that, you check the box, you're good. You're going to heaven, everything's good, you're saved. And so I knew these facts about Jesus. I didn't know the true extent of what they did and what he did. And so John Piper quotes it as this, I knew facts of him, but I didn't know the true beauty of those facts. So for me personally, I looked at the cross, but all I saw was facts. All I saw was him dying, the cross, the nails. That's all I saw, just facts. I didn't see the true magnitude of what was happening in that time. And so looking at that again, Israel had shepherds, but they were not good shepherds. They were failing in every aspect of their job. And there's Jesus, 
who is our good shepherd. He is the good shepherd of the sheep. He knows his people, he knows their needs, and he provides for them. He provides himself for their needs. He gives his life so they might know him truly and have an intimate relationship with him. That's not what the Pharisees were doing. That's what Jesus does as the good shepherd. So he is the good shepherd, and he knows his people. He knows every single need they have, and he will fulfill them. And it really wasn't until this past year for me that I truly understood what it meant to truly know Jesus. And it was coming to LCC. I got baptized with Pastor Dan and Pastor Joe, and ever since then, it just it took off. You know, my knowledge wasn't just head knowledge. It wasn't just facts. It was knowing Jesus truly. It was knowing what he did, the true magnitude of everything that was done. And so knowing Jesus is to have an intimate and loving relationship with him. To know him is to receive him. And then the question comes up, how do you receive him? What does it mean to truly receive Jesus? There's two things. It's faith and repentance. And we read this in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says, believe in the gospel and repent of your sins. So remember, he came to believe this. He believed in the gospel. He came and he lived the sinless life that none of us here could have ever lived. And then he died the death that we all here should have died for our sins because we are sinners in the eyes of God. Okay, we do not deserve the death. He, deserved, he took the death that we deserved. And then three days later, he was resurrected. So he really just didn't die. If you look at the crucifixion, he didn't just die. Like a death we think of today where you're lethal injection or someone getting shot. It was the most gruesome death. He was beaten. He was forced to wear a crown of thorns. He was nailed to a cross. And these were not little nails we think of. They were big, long, sharp iron nails that were through his hands and his feet. And he suffered on that cross for hours. It wasn't a quick death. It was a very long, excruciating process. He was on the cross for hours, blood covering his entire body, dripping down. And as he's on the cross, he had to push himself up to try and take one breath because of the immense pressure on his lungs. That is the way you would die on a cross. It was not a simple death at all. It was a torturous death, a painful death, and a horrible death. It's the death we were spared from by Christ doing this. So it is to believe this, to believe in the gospel, having faith, is trusting this is what happened. This is what Christ did for us and his, for our sins. To know him as both Lord and Savior. We think a lot of times, just Savior, you know, he saved us for our sins. But it's truly knowing that he is both Lord and Savior and submitting to his will. So this means that we live a life of complete and total obedience to his commands. We see this in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we're supposed to follow the things that Jesus commands us to do throughout the entire New Testament. And it's the truth of God to follow that completely and utterly just the entire way. In John 10, 27, we read, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So if we hear his voice, we will follow. And if we don't, we're like Israel. They knew he was a shepherd, but they didn't follow him. They didn't care. So to know him is to hear his voice and obey, to follow him and no one else. The second part was repentance. This is true, genuine repentance. It's not, you know, I sinned last week, I messed up, I'll fix it later. You keep falling in this cycle of temptation. You keep falling down. 
You never care about it. You never fix it. It's about a 180-degree turn from your sin. It's not going back to it. So it's not just feeling bad about what you've done. We all feel bad about that. It's not about that. It's about change, wanting to change your life, turning from sin, never wanting a part of sin again. It's to desire Christ over your sin. It is to learn to hate sin as God hates sin. So to know Christ is to have true faith and true repentance, welcoming him as he is, as he is our true good shepherd. So guys, if knowing him as your good shepherd doesn't excite you, then it really, what is going to? I mean, he died on a cross, the most painful death any of us could have ever imagined, and we don't ex- are excited about it. You should be excited that he paid for your sins and that he is our good shepherd. He's not the f- shepherd like the Pharisees, which is going to lead you on the path of destruction, but he is the good shepherd to lead you on the path of righteousness. That is what we should think about this. And it is about knowing him. It's so moving into verse 15. We read, just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. So the first part, the Father knows me, and I know the Father. So this is speaking to the relationship between God the Father and God and the Son. So it's speaking to the Trinity in that sense. It's the relationship is the first and second part of the Trinity, being God the Father and the Son. So they have an intimate relationship together. It's not a simple one. It's an intimate relationship. They are one God but distinct beings. This is displayed very, very well in the prologue to the book of John, which is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, they were in the beginning together in a relationship with one another. And so in the Greek, the word logos means word, and in the sense of the passage, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, it means in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and was with, Jesus was with God. He was the Word, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. So they were together with this intimate relationship. The second part, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now I want to come back to this verse specifically because it fits very well with 17 and 18. It makes it flow and connects a lot easier. So I'll move on from there and go to verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. And so remember, he's addressing the Jews in both chapter 9 and chapter 10, which leads us to believe that he means there's other sheep who are not Jews. So they're not a part of the Jewish culture. And there's a word for that. It's Gentile, which means non-Jew. All of us here are non-Jews. We are Gentiles. And so he will bring them together into one fold, one flock together. They will hear his voice, which hearing his voice through the word of God. And so you think about that. What's the application of him, them hearing his voice and following him? Well, as Christians, it's the idea of evangelism, the idea of sharing God's word, God's truth with the people. They will hear his voice through the word and they will bring, it will bring them to him. And so this is one of the reasons why at LCC, you hear us all the time talk about knowing how to share the word, sharing the gospel with other people. Why it's such a, important aspect of the Christian life. Because while Jesus brings them, we are like the vessels that bring his word to them so they may hear his voice and come to him and receive him. So again, there'll be one flock. There's not two flocks. There's one. One flock. It's not a Jewish flock. It's not a Gentile flock. It's one flock under one shepherd. 
one following. So he is the shepherd of his flock. He is the shepherd of his sheep. There's no other little sects, no other little groups of people. It's one flock under Christ. And he is the shepherd. He's the one we're supposed to follow. So it's not my flock. It's not Pastor Dane or Pastor Joe's flock. It's not neither pastor's flock. It is solely Jesus' flock, his sheep, his people. And as soon as we remove Jesus from that center point of being the shepherd, we take him away. We've ruined the whole thing already. It's him, solely him. We can't control it. It's only Jesus. It is his flock, his control. And so going to verse 17 and 18, putting them together. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So again, the first part of 17 speaks to the relationship between the Father and the Son, of the intimate relationship. But the second part, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. Okay, he is willing to put his life on the line to protect his people. Just as any shepherd in Israel would have laid down their life if a wolf came into the flock, they would have defended them and protected them. Because that is the role of a shepherd. He fulfills that. He cared enough about his flock and his people that he's willing to live a perfectly sinless life and then die the death that his flock deserved to die. But then again, he did. He rose again. He lived again. And he beat death, sin, and hell once and for all. So, gets more into it on verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. See, there was an appointed time for Christ's death, for his hour of glory to come. There was a specific set time. If you read through the Gospel of John, you will see there are many, many times where Jesus is very close to being arrested or killed by the people. But each time that occurs, you hear him say, he quotes, my hour has not yet come. And so, Look at that and you see, when his hour did truly come, he willingly went with the guards to his trial and then awaiting crucifixion. He willingly went with them because it was his appointed time. And it was of his authority alone to give his life. No man here would dictate when that time came. It was at the right time, God's time, not the time of man. So after he was crucified, he was laid in the tomb. And he rose again on the third day, winning again the battle for death, when the battle of death sin completely, and securing a life in eternity with him for those who are called to be his followers. So again, he lays down his life for the sheep, and he raised himself up again to continue being the shepherd, the good shepherd of his flock. And no one can interrupt that will. The will of God. No one can interrupt that one bit. We read this again in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has, pur- has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? And again in Job chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So no one can take control of God's plan. 
both in the world and for our lives. No one can thwart his plan. Not at all. There's no possible chance of that happening. But this doesn't negate human responsibility because God is sovereign over all things. He wasn't just sovereign over Christ's life, death, and resurrection, but he was sovereign over the entire world. All things that have occurred and will occur. There's no man that can derail that sovereignty. So going back for a second, knowing Christ is submitting to God completely and to his will. In John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. See, we can't just sit by and let his will passively go by us because of John 10, 27. We will hear his voice, and we will follow. If we hear his voice and we do follow, we are his sheep. And if we know that we are, if we know him as the good shepherd, that's how, that is how it works. He calls you, you follow if you are of his sheep, and he becomes the good shepherd. And so when you put all of these things together into one little narrative, we see that Jesus is our good shepherd. He will lead us and guide us in our walk with him. He knows us and we know him. But it is through complete faith and true total repentance that we come to know him. Knowing him as both Lord and Savior of our lives, not just Lord or Savior. Both of them together. It is displayed here, again, as you come to LCC, you might see the little the t-shirts that say Christian Hedonist on the back, or the little business cards that say it on the front. This, this definition, if you look on your bulletins on the front page, it is written there as well, every single Sunday. So it says, For the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So God is most glorified when we enjoy him. It's by seeking satisfaction and total joy in Christ above anything else. So not just in the gifts he gives us, but in him only. We enjoy him because he's the good shepherd. He's not the average day shepherd like the ones in Israel who are leading them astray. He is the total, complete, good shepherd. So it's like I said in my personal story, I knew facts about Jesus, but I didn't know the full magnitude of what was done and what he was as the shepherd, the good shepherd. So we enjoy him by submitting to his will and allowing it to be done because he is Lord and Savior of all of our lives. And we can't change that. Because of what he did on the cross, he became both Lord and Savior for everyone. And he will bring all of his sheep together into one flock to be one people united under Christ. People from all different backgrounds, all walks of life. They're not segregated by being Jews or Gentiles. They are one people. And then through his word, they come to know him. And by being us, the vessels for his word, we allow that to happen in a sin. We allow to bring them the word and the truth of God to hear his voice so that he can draw them to him and become one with him in his flock. So that, then there's a the sovereign will of God which is supreme above all other things in this world. Because man cannot thwart God's plan because it is his authority that it be done. He is the good shepherd and he will lead his flock according to the will of the Father, who is sovereign above all things, both here in earth and on heaven, and in heaven. And his will will be done. And this goes back, guys, you hear this a lot too from Joe when he preaches. He is a big God. We have a very big God, not a small God we tend to make him out to be. They can't solve our problems. Because as Joe says, he can do more in five minutes than we can ever do in five years of our lives because he's that big, that sovereign. 
So again, his will will be done because he is a sovereign God. There's nothing to do to change that at all. He's a big God. And he is our good shepherd. We should take comfort in knowing that. Because he is the only shepherd that will truly lead us to righteousness and to truth. Not the shepherds of Israel who led them astray, were taking abuse of power, but he's the one who will lead you on the path of righteousness, to true unity with Christ, true understanding and true salvation. Guys, it's his will. It'll be done completely according to the will of the Father. And so, I guess as the band comes into play, I just want to go and pray for you guys here. Lord God, we come to you right now with open and humble hearts. We would just be able to be receptive to, to your word today, God, knowing that you are our good shepherd, that you sacrificed your life, you lived a sinless life, and then died the death we should have died as sinners. And then three days later, you rose again, conquering both death, sin, and hell completely, so they will never take power again. God, you know us. You know our needs, and you provide for those needs. And you did that ultimately by giving yourself. Lord, I pray that we would, we, just, we would know that in our hearts, that what you've done, the magnitude of what you have done for us, that we can just comprehend the total amazingness of what happened there, God. pray that we would also understand the importance of sharing your word, your truth, because, God, that is how we can bring people to you so you can bring them completely into you. We can be the vessels for your word so people will come to know your voice and follow you as their good shepherd. And, God, that your will reigns supreme above all other things in this world, and there's nothing we can do to thwart that. It is of your complete authority and your sovereignty. God, we, just, we love you so much, and we thank you that we have this opportunity to be in a church, being in the body of Christ, that we can learn and grow with each other and with you. We can just continue to develop our relationship with you. We continue to understand that you are a good shepherd. And he will lead us on the path of righteousness, the path of true salvation and eternity with you, God. No one else can do that, only you. And your will will be done and reign supreme over all things, God. Lord God, we love you. It's in the name that we pray. Amen.